This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. He did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. My name is Jonathan Master. I'm your host, and I am joined with my good friend James Dolzell. And actually, James, it's just you and me today, and I want to talk to you. I actually want to pick your brain a little bit and ask you a couple of questions that I've been thinking about in terms of how we talk about God. So are you ready for that? I think so. I mean, that's obviously an incomprehensible subject, but I think so. Okay, so here's the way I want to frame it. When we talk about God, we immediately go to the scriptures, and as well we should. However, the scriptures themselves point us toward the fact that God has revealed himself to his creatures in nature. Right. And there are challenges with starting there, but I wanted to talk a little bit about that. In what ways would you say God has revealed himself in nature, through nature, what can we learn about that? What are some of the risks there? Would you, if you were starting a conversation, I'll add a fifth question here. Would you, if you were starting a conversation, start there? Or would you immediately open your Bible? Uh, that's a good question. I, I suppose I would not be in any way uncomfortable talking about God on the basis of his handiwork. And I think for the very reason that his handiwork and his regular ordering of nature is part of that collective witness that he's given to himself. And I'm thinking of how the Apostle Paul might sometimes respond differently to, say, a Jewish interlocutor than he might with a pagan or Greek interlocutor, where he's going to take his point of departure somewhat differently depending on his audience. And with Greeks especially, he seems very comfortable beginning with the order of creation. I'm thinking of Acts 14, where he's responding after the whole event at Lystra, where he and Barnabas were misidentified as Hermes Mm -hmm. and Zeus. Mm -hmm. And he tells them, in effect, that we ought not worship things that are of like passions with us, but we should worship God. And he proclaims God as the creator. And he says, you know, you should turn from these vain things, these idols, to a living God. And then the first thing he points to is to God's handiwork and creation, who made, as he says, the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. And then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply say, turn from idols to God who's creator. He then begins to explain to them how, in fact, they themselves know him to be such. Do you so, know what I'm getting yeah, at? I, I do. I do. And so, let me, let me kind of translate that a little bit and say, So if you were talking to someone, and and I've gotten this response, you probably have too, we were talking to someone about God and they say, don't answer me from the Bible, because to them it's sort of a circular, it feels circular to them. So would you be willing to then not start with the Bible and to say, well, let's then start with creation when I talk about God? Not as an absolute precondition. In other words, maybe that's just not liking to be told what to do. (laughs) All right. But there's that part of me that wants to say, in no way am I going to agree to ground rules that rules the Bible out or puts it in a secondary place. But as a starting place, you're willing to say, let's talk about creation. So where the apostle goes with it, after he proclaims God as creator to these Lystrans, he says, in generations gone by, he did not leave himself without witness effective pause here. The witness that he's referring to is not that of the prophets or of the Old Testament scriptures. He says he did not leave himself without witness 
in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, the witness to God's godness, to the thing that obligates them to worship him and to give thanks, which is exactly what Romans 1 says the unbeliever does not want to do. The thing that obligates them is in fact the witness to God's goodness manifested in the ordinary course of nature, in this case, uh, fruitful rains falling and bringing in a harvest and having a success and even gladness. So there is a counter argument that some people make, that, that pushback that they would give, where they would say, okay, all well and good, but because everyone has fallen, because we're fallen creatures, because we're sinful creatures, because we don't want to give thanks to God, again, as Romans 1 says, all have rejected this. Right. Therefore, it's not fruitful to go there because what people are going to need is confrontation with the scriptures. And the spirit uses the word of God to transform their hearts. So you can point them all you want to the good things that God's given and to these good things of nature, but it, it, there's a certain futility to it, even if it's true. In the apologetic encounter, I will grant that it's true that the revelation of God in nature is not sufficient to bring to them the word of life and reconciliation that as ministers of the gospel, those entrusted with the oracles of God are commissioned to proclaim. Nevertheless, I would say that that doesn't rule out the truth power of the witness of God through the things that are made, particularly as the apostle uses it to place conviction on the hearts of these pagans who are worshiping gods like Zeus and Hermes, but not worshiping the God who witnesses to himself through the things that are made and through his providence. So in that respect, I wouldn't want to discount the effectiveness apologetically of a natural theology to mount a case for the prosecution against the unbeliever in that part of what condemns you is not merely your rejection of the gospel. Part of what condemns you is your rejection of the general revelation of God through the things that are made. And so the apostle uh, will do the same thing in Romans 1, where he'll say that God's wrath is revealed from heaven and it's all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, what truth? The truth about God. How was it manifested to them? Because God made it evident to them. And then, he, then we're told that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through the things that have been made. And then it says this, so that they are without excuse. I right. think part of the prosecutorial side, if that's the right way to say it, mm -hmm. of the apologetic encounter should freely draw on the revelation of God in creation. And I think what we don't want to do is we don't want to confuse the fact that the natural revelation of God is not sufficient to bring to us life and reconciliation with the idea that somehow then it's ineffective or unuseful in the apologetic encounter. Okay, fair enough. So then let's go in a different direction. What can we develop from natural theology? That's a good question. And I know that misgivings about natural theology, especially among more recent Protestants comes from the fear that natural theology is granting too much to the unbeliever. Right, and because Romans 1 says they all suppress it. Yeah, and so I think we need to clearly draw that line in the sand and say, look, there is an intellectual knowledge because he does say that they knew God, but they did not honor him as God. Mm -hmm. We need to acknowledge that there is an actual knowledge of God that is true, possessed by the unbeliever. If that weren't the case, then that could never be a witness against him. Do you know what I'm saying? There mm -hmm. has to be a true knowledge. 
at the same time, so if the question is, well, what about the unbeliever in the natural knowledge of God? Uh, the thing that we always have to acknowledge is that it's never just a question of the knowledge of God when it comes to the unbeliever. There's also this whole matter of the will. And there's the whole matter of the defiled heart suppressing the truth and unrighteousness that though it has true knowledge, does not want to give honor to God as such knowledge would require of us. And then as Romans one twenty one goes on, or give thanks. And then it goes about its work of trying to subvert and undermine yeah, that and, truth. And, and if you think about suppression, you can yell at someone until you're blue in the face and say, you're suppressing something you know, and it makes it makes no difference. But I want to talk about the believer. Okay. Now, that's where I thought you were going with it yeah. and where I think we need to go, which is the question of, let us talk about the regenerated person, the one who is being rebuilt into the true knowledge of God, as Jeremiah says, God has given each of us who are in Christ a heart to know him, that is to know God. For those of us that are being refashioned into the image of the one who created us and who have been given a heart not to suppress the truth and tell lies about God anymore, but to welcome his revelation, what can we do with natural revelation? Exactly. Okay. I know that's a long way. Of, no, no, but this your, is... Maybe your question was simpler than the way I'm trying to explain <laughs> no, it. No, it's fine. I, I think actually the unbeliever part is is important to talk about, and that's usually the level at which we do talk about it. What what evangelistic value does nature have? Sure. But then, so now in the church, when we're doing theology, when we're trying to come up with our ideas of God, what does nature have to teach us? A lot. All uh, right. But that's not... You wanted more than that. Nature tells us... Not just that there is a God, but as Romans 1.20 says, it actually is full of content. The things made known to us or witnessed to us to the things that are made are, as he says, the invisible attributes. When I teach the doctrine of God, I always point out to my students that it's actually attributes plural. In other words, it's not just one or some isolated attribute. You get this idea that nature actually tells us a lot about God, that it's saying many things about God. Um, and then it goes on his eternal power. And then it says his divine nature. In other words, we can actually identify in some, if not comprehensive or thoroughgoing sense, the nature of God. We can nevertheless identify, if I can say this way, the godness of God the divine nature of God through the things that are made so that part of our knowledge of what it means for God to be God is a knowledge at which we can arrive through the contemplation of the things that are made. Our knowledge, not just of an attribute or two, but I take it of perhaps a number of attributes, is knowledge that can be arrived at also through the things that are made. His eternality explicitly stated as well as his power so that when you ask, what can we know about God? If you wanted me to enumerate in systematic categories, I would say things like his aseity or his self-sufficiency. Yeah, explain each okay. term. I, uh, this is my role. To not let me get away with confusing yes. language. That's a good role. You're the referee. It, it, yeah, keeps me busy. <laughs> um, thanks. I think with aseity, what we mean is that God is of himself. Ase just means that God is of himself, that God is self-sufficient. How could we know that through nature? Again, this would require some contemplation of what is in fact sufficient to ground the existence of all things. But I think that we can show that a reasonable contemplation of what the source of all created being must be, must himself not be one who depends upon something else. He in can't turn be created. He can't be. He, can't be, he cannot derive right. any feature of his being 
from what is not himself. And I think in that sense, we can simply come to that conclusion about God. By the way, that's not a, some people get uncomfortable with this. That's not a uniquely Christian conclusion. Right. And maybe a quick caveat. Maybe this is a rabbit trail, not a caveat, but you judge. The fact that it's not uniquely Christian doesn't make it anti-Christian or untrue. Right. It means that we have much more to say as Christians than simply that, but not less than that. And we could say this about other attributes too. I think his together with that would be like his immutability. I would mount an argument for his impassibility that God is not moved or changed by the actions of creatures upon himself. So if I can jump in then, you could delineate a number of things along those lines. But what it sounds like is you need to do theology at the level at which we're commanded to do it. You need to contemplate. You need to actually think about these things within the boundaries of scripture. But in other words, being a theologian is more than just being an exegete of scripture. It is. The contemplative aspect where you draw out necessary foundations, things that have to be true in order for other things to be true, that kind of way of doing theology. Again, you meant you used the word contemplative. The more daring older word would have been speculative, but speculative to the modern ear sounds like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just running a haphazard guess yeah, about yeah, God. Yeah. In the older sense, I think we may have talked about this before, it has the idea of, of gazing or contemplating by looking for a long time. You and I both wear spectacles on Mm -hmm. our faces. Uh, This is to help us see things more clearly. In olden times, speculative theology didn't have this sort of guesswork idea to it. It had the idea of gazing for a long time and clearly upon the revelation of God, whether in scripture or in the things that are made. And that's hard to do. I mean, everything in our culture kind of pushes against that. Louis Burkhoff calls the acquired knowledge of God, where we have to set our wills to the study of God as a, he calls it a laborious process. Right. Luther might have described this as church sweat, you know, the hard work of thinking theologically, that you have to stick with it and really gaze and contemplate for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a great legacy of this in the Christian tradition going back to the fathers down through the medievals and right into the reformed and protestant yeah this is uh, what tradition. it meant to be a theologian that's right and as far as natural theology goes or contemplating natural revelation as a theologian i think the temptation for a lot of us now is to think well that's all well and good but doesn't the bible give us just as much information in a much more ready made fashion so that we wouldn't necessarily have to do natural theology to arrive at the conclusion that scripture gives us to by force of divine authority or or revelation. And there's a sense in which even someone like Thomas Aquinas would have sympathized with that. He makes this argument at the very beginning of his Summa Theologiae that, in fact, it's a mercy of God that in the Bible, he often simply by the force of authoritative divine revelation gives us the conclusions that might have taken a great deal of time and effort if we were to arrive at them naturally. He doesn't put those two in conflict with each other, the natural knowledge of God or the knowledge of God derived through a consideration of scripture. He doesn't put those in conflict with each other, but he does make the point that sometimes the natural revelation of God brings us in a very different route to the conclusions that scripture gives us simply by force of proposition. All right. I need to cut you off because of time, but I think you'll be upset at me if you don't read this quote that you've had marked the entire time we've been talking. So read it, translate it, and then that's it. Okay. This from 
Francis Turretin's uh, Elenctic Theology, first topic, question three for those that actually care about Train those fires. things. First, first volume, though. And he asked the question whether natural theology may be granted. And he says that it can and, and should be. And he says this in his third point. The question about natural theology is not whether this knowledge is perfect and saving. Mm-hmm. For we confess that after the entrance of sin, it was so much obscured as to be rendered altogether insufficient for salvation. So we need the gospel. We need the proclamation of the word of God. Special revelation is absolutely indispensable to a knowledge of God in which we are saved and reconciled to him. Right. He says, but that's not a strike against natural theology because natural theology was never actually supposed to be for that end. The special revelation of God in covenant and particularly in redemption is, of course, for the end of salvation. The natural revelation of God and the things that are made predates salvation history okay. itself. He goes on. He says, for natural theology, but it was only whether any knowledge of God remains in man sufficient to lead him to believe that God exists and must be religiously worshipped. So that the existence of God and our need to worship God as he is. Yeah, that's right. And he says, with regard to the Christian tradition, he says, the Orthodox uniformly teach that there is a natural theology, partly innate, derived from the book of conscience by means of common notion, and partly acquired. He says, drawn from the book of creatures discursively. Um, I like to think he's probably thinking of something like Aquinas' natural theology, where part of our natural knowledge of God is given to us by conscience. Part of it in which we don't really choose to have it or not have it, or we are simply given it, the seed of religion, mm -hmm. as Calvin says. But part of it also comes discursively. That is to say, by working through reasons and argumentations and contemplating from premises on through to conclusions, and that part of it is contemplating the book of creatures and discursing truly, of course, upon it. I'll leave it with that. Uh, if you want a great commendation for a good Christian use of natural theology that doesn't undermine Protestant. a Protestant use of it, that doesn't undermine the reality of sin and the limitations of natural theology, but nevertheless commends its fruitfulness. If you have that interest, look at Turretin. Well, we trust that all of you listening do have that interest. And if you didn't before, we hope you do now. Thanks again, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go. We couldn't really do this at all. We couldn't do any of the things that the Alliance does without the donations of generous givers and listeners like yourself. So if you'd like to donate, if you're able to do that, you can go to AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org and click the Donate button. We'd also love to hear from you, and we'd love for you to share this program with others who you think might be helped by it. So thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>